I want to thank you all for coming to uh, this talk today. Also, I want to thank uh, Rick Herman, the director of the Mershon Center, for co-sponsoring this event, uh, and Don Huben uh, over there, uh, who is also co-sponsoring it via the working group for the OSU Center for Ethics and Human Values, uh, along with the Political Theory Workshop, which I direct. Um, in, uh, uh, in, in introducing Jim, I hope you'll permit me uh, a brief biographical moment uh, for myself, which is I was an undergraduate at Northwestern University and had unusual training in philosophy. Uh, I, I did political philosophy, but also empirical research. I was interested in statistics and empirical research into uh, democratic processes, political processes, <clears throat> and was trying to decide where to go to graduate school and what sorts of things I might be interested in working on. And when I talked around to people, they said, well, you really just have to pick. you got to go do one. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'll just go do philosophy or I'll just go do um, uh, standard uh, sort of social science. And then I had the great good fortune of coming across the work of uh, Jim Fishkin, our guest today. Uh, and that was a proof of concept that not only could the two be combined, but they could be combined at the highest academic level. Uh, and to boot, uh, combined in such a way that promoted the, 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 the cause of freedom and democracy across the world. I don't think that it's hyperbole to say that. Um, Professor Fishkin holds the Janet M. Pack Chair in International Communications at Stanford, Stanford University. He's also a Professor of Political Science and Communications, Director of the Stanford Center for Deliberative Democracy, and Chair of the Department of Communications. Fishkin is the author of a number of books, including Democracy and Deliberation, The Dialogue of Justice, The Voice of the People, uh, is co-author with Bruce Ackerman of Deliberation Day, and his most recent book, When the People Speak, Deliberative Democracy and Public Consultation, was published by Oxford University Press last year. Professor Fishkin is best known for developing deliberative polling and has conducted them in the United States, Britain, Australia, Denmark, Bulgaria, China, Greece, and many other countries. I hope you'll join me in wel welcoming Jim Fishkin, who's going to talk to us today about deliberative democracy and public consultation. Well, gee, I had no... It's, oh, excuse me. Is that working? I had no idea I had that effect on Michael. I hope that it was, I'm sure it was constructive. <laughs> Talking to his graduate students today, I know it was a good idea. Um, uh, when I looked at the political science department website, because I was trying to figure out, was I speaking Wednesday or Thursday at the law school or the political science department, uh, I saw that I was competing with one Jeremy Fishkin, who was going to speak on deliberative democracy and public consultation, also exactly at noon. Uh, and so uh, I figured maybe it was a debate with Jeremy. Uh, now, the last, I also had a debate with a Jeremy once. On the occasion of Jeremy Bentham's 250th anniversary, I had a debate with the auto icon, which, as you know, Bentham is a, is a, a mummy, a statue of himself, and on display at University College London. And so I had a debate with Jeremy then, and he didn't answer. <laughs> uh, and the hallmark of a lot of our political communication is the unanswered claim, particularly to a specific audience who will never tune in to the other side. And one of the merits of deliberation is that argument is met by counterargument, and people become informed about and open in some situation to the competing reasons. So I'm glad that I, 
I would have been happy to debate Jeremy, but... By the way, Jeremy Bentham was an advocate of something called the Public Opinion Tribunal, which is eerily similar to the deliberative poll in some ways, just sort of institutionally underspecified. But he had something like the same idea. Now, before I situate... What I'm going to tell you about is an empirical research program, but it's an empirical research program in the interests of making real a thought experiment about what the people would think under good conditions. I want to situate it in terms of competing notions of democracy before I launch into this. Uh, And so in my new book, uh, uh, When the People Speak, I distinguish these four theories of democracy in terms of component principles of political equality, mass participation, deliberation, non-tyranny is avoiding tyranny of the majority. Um, um, And what I argue is that these four, actually there's 16 possible ways to combine these uh, four uh, principles, but I argue in in an appendix to the book uh, called Why We Only Need Four Democratic Theories, um, that uh, you can reduce the arguments to these four for uh, most purposes. And these are really Schumpeterian competitive democracy, which ideally will count votes equally, but I have a discussion about how Schumpeter himself was not uh, so concerned with how many people were counted. But uh, nevertheless, in its best version, you count people equally, but somewhat skeptical about mass participation, somewhat skeptical about deliberation, but with a judicial system and uh, constitution that will protect rights. And the idea is that there's a competitive struggle for the people's vote. It doesn't really matter. There's no real um, public will formation is not taken seriously. It's a, that's a kind of mystification of, uh, of uh, classical democratic theory. And uh, um, by the way, Posner's written a version of this where there's Classical democratic theory, which tries to take seriously the will of the people, which is just stupidity and confusion. And then there's, there's uh, competitive democracy, which is the only real version of democracy. But it doesn't matter how much the public is bamboozled or misled. The point is to win in an adversary process. Um, and um, so deliberation is certainly not a question uh, for uh, the mass public. Now, our system was actually born, as you know, I'm going to just give you this minute and a half summary before we go on, the uh, potted version of democratic theory. Our system was, of course, born in a vision of... Um, Madison said he was going to practice the strategy of what he called successive filtrations so that uh, uh, the uh, representatives would as he said in Federalist 10, refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens, uh, and that those views might better represent the public good than would the views of the people themselves if convened for the purpose, because the people themselves are not deliberating, but the representatives will deliberate. Madison was not thinking about parties at that point, though he later went off with uh, Jefferson to found a party, but at that point, parties were... Uh, made him think of factions adverse to the rights of others. Uh, And so the elite deliberators, and of course the Senate was indirectly elected, the convention, the um, 
Uh, even the Electoral College in its original form was supposed to have deliberation on a state-by-state -state basis. So, so they had these indirect institutions and we have the, the legacy and some of these institutions, we don't even know why we have them, like the Electoral College, but they were originally supposed to be representatives deliberate. Now if an, if a, if an Electoral College, um, if an elector to the Electoral College casts a vote based upon his or her deliberations about who the best president is, he can be prosecuted as a faithless elector uh, because um, uh, it's just become a crude voting, vote counting mechanism. So that's the elite deliberation without parties. Progressives reformed, brought decisions to the mass public. I live in California where we have the legacy of uh, uh, initiative referendum and recall uh, and, uh, and the campaigning that goes along with it. Uh, and you get county, participation in political equality. But for reasons that I outline in the book, I present, take these three principles, political equality, participation, and deliberation, the ones that are internal to the structure of the democratic process. And you will find or argue in the book that there's a kind of a trilemma, a dilemma with three corners. You can get two, but getting the third as well in an institutional design is almost impossible. You can't get three at the same time. You can go round and round that circle. So, um, uh, so you can get participation, political equality, but not deliberation. Uh, deliberative democracy I define as the combination of political equality and deliberation. And there is a method of getting it as a practical alternative um, and making it an input to politics and policy. And that method, which I thought I had invented, actually goes back to ancient Athens, uh, where deliberative microcosms chosen by lot, and what is a lot but a random sample, uh, I mean, there are a few complexities. You had to have your name on the list and stuff, but what is a lot but a random sample, would deliberate. The Council of 500 deliberated for a year uh, and set the agenda for the assembly. There were many other ancient institutions, uh, legislative commissions called nomothetai that would decide, make the final decision on legislation in ancient Athens. Uh, and ancient Athens is not, was not a place where you could gather everybody together, the founders' views to the contrary, uh, because there were 60,000 citizens at its height. And I visited the Penix, the hill where the assembly met, and it could only, hit, fill, it could only hold about 6,000 people. So they would, by lottery, pick 500 people, you see. Uh, and by the way, by the magic of statistics, they didn't know the statistics at the time, but the same size sample with a few hundred, you can represent a population like ancient Athens of 60,000. But with almost the same precision in the estimates, you can represent a much larger population, millions, hundreds of millions. Uh, and we've done populations of hundreds of millions. And so this is inherently scalable and practical. So if you think about any form of public consultation, you have to think about who was selected, on what basis, to just leave it open to everybody. Then you might get a, a slop, a self, what my former collaborator Norman Bradburn calls a self-selected listener opinion poll, a slop where just anybody can volunteer themselves. 
these things get are easily open to capture and are unrepresentative. Try to get everybody uh, with um, random sampling has real merits uh, because it's not open to capture and actually provides a scientific basis for saying that we put the whole community in one room, the whole population in microcosm in one room. And then the idea is provide them good conditions for thinking about the issue. Of course, the trick is in what are the good conditions. I'll give you my own particular account, but that is not a single canonical account. It's something that we do experiments with, we assess, we try to improve in order to think as best we can in many contexts around the world what would be the best basis for people uh, to provide ordinary citizens to think about uh, an issue. By the way, the, the founders were perhaps depending on some of your reading, they were perhaps skeptical. Certainly Posner's uh, account, they were perhaps skeptical about whether the ordinary public was competent to think, to deliberate. However, as far as I'm concerned, that's an empirical question. And we have found over and over that the people are very smart if you give them the right context and opportunity with the right institutional design. Um, we did one deliberative poll. I'll, I'll explain what a deliberative poll is in a, uh, in a minute. We did one deliberative poll in a part of Thailand for the Ministry of Health on the medical care system, Udan Tanai, where the average level of education was four years. And it worked just as well as any other deliberative poll in terms of knowledge gain, in terms of all the criteria that I'll tell you about. So. The public is quite capable of, in China, we've done deliberative polls where 11% illiterate were in the sample. And they acquired information and participated and changed just like the other participants. The public, because they would, they would learn and get engaged in the issue by talking about them together. The public is very capable, but normally they are inattentive. There are basically three problems in about public opinion that the deliberative poll uh, addresses. One is, you know, I borrowed the term from Anthony Downs, rational ignorance. Um, I have a long-running debate with my collaborator, Bob Leskin, as to whether it's rational ignorance or just irrational ignorance. But I think if you've got one vote in millions on a policy issue or a political issue, you've got little reason to pay attention uh, in terms of any notion that you're going to have an effect, your individual voter opinion will have an effect, and you've got other things to do. You've got to do your job, provide for your family, et cetera, et cetera. So um, by phantom opinions, I mean just non-attitudes in, the, in um, the original sense proposed by Converse and, you know, George Bishop's study of the Public Affairs Act of 1975 and the Washington Post's uh, and the public offering opinions about it, but of course it didn't exist. It was fictional. And then the Washington Post celebrating the 20th anniversary of the non-existent Public Affairs Act of 1975 by asking people what they thought about the repeal. And half the sample was told President Clinton wanted to repeal it and half that the Republicans in Congress wanted to repeal it. And they got quite different results based upon that little bit of information or misinformation, but it didn't exist in the first place. And whether these are non-attitudes or just very top-of-the-head attitudes where there's you know, a wisp of an opinion there, but it's an impression of sound bites and headlines that haven't been thought about. 
Then there's this issue of selectivity of sources, by which I mean the fact that even if people do talk about politics or policy, they will tend to talk to people like themselves, um, people from similar social locations. Uh, and uh, if they use the web, they're likely, it seems, if you believe Cass Sunstein and Republic.com and some research, um, uh, they'll go to sources they tend to agree with uh, and... Um, uh, avoid those they uh, disagree with, and uh, I think that if an, any given night you look at the uh, MSNBC and Fox News, you'll think you're living, you know, there are parallel universes of information being provided. Um, and so um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the public sphere has been uh, disaggregated into many smaller spheres of the like-minded, online, face-to-face. Indeed, you might say that it's a breakdown in the, the liberal democratic presumptions that Mill charted in On Liberty, where liberty is supposed to lead to diversity, diversity to uh, exposure to diversity, to individuality, which was Mill's term, as you know, for something that we might call autonomy or people thinking for themselves. And suppose that increases in liberty afforded by technology and personal freedom, living exactly where you want, looking at the sources you want, talking to the people you want, not avoiding the people you don't want to talk to. The increase in liberty may lead to the choice of sameness rather than diversity, and so less exposure to diversity and less ability to achieve anything like what Mill called individuality because you only, again, hear one side of the argument, like my arguing with the auto icon. In the deliberative poll, we take a good sample, and I'll tell you about that, but then we expose them to balanced information, small group deliberation, questions from the small groups directed to competing experts, um, uh, politicians, policymakers, always competing. We usually have a large stakeholder process to develop the briefing materials so people, the stakeholders, after have to exhaustively work to not agree on what should be done, but to agree that here are pros and cons with reasonably accurate information about the arguments on either side, uh, and the whole thing is vetted for balance and accuracy, and they have to eventually sign off on this. Uh, when we did a deliberate poll on the Australian referendum on the Republic, which was a surprisingly contentious issue for uh, for a non-Australian like me to be involved in. Uh, the whole draft, we went through 19 complete drafts of the briefing document until they could finally agree. But we had the official yes committee and the official no committee for the referendum signing off on the material because the whole thing was broadcast by Australian national television from the old parliament house. And it was a big national sample of the Australian people deliberating soon before the referendum, the national vote on the referendum. So... So we were able to get the materials that publicly vetted and balanced. Nobody disputed that there was a, that there was anything inaccurate in the materials. There, were, you know, it was worked through so that um, and people on either side could vouch for uh, the materials and the lineup of competing experts who would answer questions from the sample. All that was signed off on before we convened the actual deliberative poll, and we got a good sample of several hundred. Uh, representative Australians uh, to, uh, to come to Canberra. And that's the kind of process we've done over and over. 
uh, when possible, we even have control groups who don't deliberate. Uh, of course, we're doing, we're opportunistic. So we're doing the projects that come along where there's not somebody with a predetermined conclusion who wants to consult the public. So this process that I'm describing to you is a process of public consultation. It's also a research program. It's also a form of political communication. It's also potentially, in some cases, an institutionalized political reform, um, as I'll describe. So it's many things at once. But the, the social science is meant to add to the credibility that this really is a good sample of the people. These really are good conditions. Some of the distortions in other small group processes, like some of the distortions that are found in juries, um, um, do not occur in the deliberative poll because of its design. And uh, we have the data to show that, as I will uh as I will suggest, and all of this is sort of summarized in the, in the book. The book is then cross-referenced to a series of articles that are under submission or in press where the data is presented in the articles. The, most of the articles uh, are, uh, all the articles are collaborative. The empirical articles are collaborative. Uh, my most important collaborator is Bob Luskin, Robert Luskin of the University of Texas at Austin. But on all the articles, there are lots of collaborators because we have, you know, Irish collaborators, Italian collaborators, Brazilian collaborators, Chinese collaborators, um, uh, collaborators from lots of different countries on different projects. Uh, Chantal Iyengar is a collaborator. Don Green. Oh, we have a, in the current issue of the British Journal of Political Science just published in April, we have two articles, one about the Chinese projects and one that has a fully controlled experiment embedded inside the New Haven project showing the effect of discussion. So there are two of the articles referenced in the book are just now published, I think, uh, in the last couple of days. You can find them online. Uh, and others are in press. So, so I should say, I'm speaking, but I'm part of a broader network. This is a, a collaborative research uh, program involving many people. These are... Uh, we've done 16 countries, many of them multiple times. Uh, and let me say a little bit about how we would evaluate these projects. Uh, are they representative? Most of the deliberative polls are face-to-face -face deliberative polls. Some of them are online. That's a further complicated story. If we have time, I'll present you results of one of the online projects that we did with PBS and Jim Lair. Um, uh, but uh, uh, and we've done our online projects with Knowledge Networks, and now we're working with YouGov Polymetrics and Doug Rivers uh, on the on the uh, on the online projects. And we've got one an online project just about to go into the field for the Center for Disease Control about obesity policy. Uh, but the claim of the first issue is: Are they representative? And w normally, what we do is we do random sampling. We do our best to have a large number of callbacks to get the people to take the initial survey. With the Berkeley Survey Research Center and Ensign, a smaller one that we, a smaller group that we just did a statewide project in Michigan that was broadcast by Jim Lair, and you can see this hard times, hard choices on the on the front of our website, um, uh, the 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 one hour documentary about the economic crisis in Michigan. Um, but 
you know, we'll go back up to 30 times to the initial uh, people drawn in the sample in order to get them to do the initial interview. So we work very hard to get a good sample. That allows us then to compare the people who accept the invitation and actually come for the weekend, whether it was to Lansing or to Austin, Texas, or to Philadelphia or Canberra, uh, we allows us to compare the people who come and the people who don't come attitudinally as well as demographically. And as you'll see, there usually are very few statistically significant differences and very few differences, small differences in magnitude on, in the attitudes or in the demographics um, uh, between the people who come and the people who don't come. So we can really say we put the whole country or the whole state or whatever it is in one room under conditions where it can think about the issues for a weekend or sometimes only a day or two days or two and a half days, whatever the period is. Uh, and they think about it in small group discussions and plenary sessions with, where nobody gives a speech but competing experts or policymakers answer questions that are agreed questions from the small groups. So the representativeness, the beginning is a criterion. The opinion change. Well, opinion change is not exactly a criterion, but it's a basis. If nothing happens, if nothing ever happened in a deliberative poll, you would say, why do it? So actually, uh, more than 70% of the opinion items we've ever asked have uh, changed, offered statistically significant net change. Um, so deliberative opinion is different from top-of-the-head opinion. Uh, we find that over and over. Uh, we have information questions. So we can demonstrate that there's always significant information gain. And we have a model which was first in this BJPS article that Luskin and I and Roger Jow wrote years ago uh, called Considered Opinions. Uh, we showed that the uh, it's the people who become more informed who change their views. So it's not the, it's not just some random change, but it seems, appears to be driven by information. Avoiding distortions. Now, as I describe in the book, there are two main distortions that we are checking for at the moment. One is, uh, and, and both of these come out of the literature uh, that's critical of juries. Uh, one is the notion that juries and thus deliberative democracy more generally, you can see an agenda for this sort of in Lynn Sanders' classic article against deliberation. Um, uh, and uh, uh, by the way, she's part of a group with Jenny Mansbridge and some others who are part of a symposium about the book that's coming out in The Good Society uh, where they... they uh, um, um, a Habermasian scholar, Abina Asmanova and uh, 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 Sandy Levinson and uh, Jenny and uh, Lynn uh, wrote long responses, critiques of the when the people speak and then I responded. So that's in press. And uh, Lynn agreed that the empirical work that we had in the papers re referenced in the book in the discussion um, convinced her that her critique of deliberation in general does not apply to the uh, deliberative poll design so far as uh, our data appear to show. That's what she says in her article. Uh, and what is her critique? 
the critique is that in juries, the educated dominate, the men dominate, the more advantaged dominate the discussions. Um, they not only talk the most, but they determine the results uh, uh, according to their preferences. Uh, and uh, But we... Um, I'll show you some results, uh, some deliberative polling results uh, uh, where we look at that question. And we think that the balance of the design uh, with moderated discussions, uh, we avoid that. Uh, and we can demonstrate that. Uh, the second critique is uh, Cass Sunstein has a critique of um, which you can see summarized most recently in the book uh, Going to Extremes but it was in um, several other publications um, where he said, when people discuss things together, they go, if there's an issue, he calls it polarization. If there's an issue for which there is a midpoint, if a group, small group starts out on one side of the midpoint, it will go further out to the extreme. If it starts out on the other side, it will go further out to that extreme. He, he cites two reasons, causal mechanisms. One is the imbalance in the argument pool and the other is a kind of social approval effect where people um, are reaching a consensus. Now, a jury has to reach a verdict. A deliberative poll, we get the responses in confidential questionnaires. Um, a, um, a jury is not moderated. The deliberative poll is moderated and the moderators are instructed to make sure that nobody uh, uh, nobody dominates, everybody uh, participates in the discussion. And the deliberative poll does not try to reach a consensus because of the confidential questionnaires. For whatever reason, uh, we, uh, Cass has admitted we don't get the polarization. Um, and so those are the two distortions. And why would those two distortions be disturbing to an advocate of deliberative polling like me? Well, the, they would be disturbing because if some kind of small pattern of small group psychology is determining the results, then you can't say the people are deciding on the merits. It's some kind of, of, um, of uh, 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 group consensus process, uh, uh, a variant of groupthink or something, but we, we avoid those. Does it make any difference? Some of the criticisms of deliberative democracy are that it's just talk. Well, we often find it does make a difference, and I think I'm going to speed up, and, and it doesn't have an impact on citizens, um, does it make better citizens? Well, I don't know. We have some suggestive, we have a, an early paper that's suggestive about that, and I'm proud to say we just won a contest uh, which gave us a pot of money. The University of Chicago had uh, an international contest called, you can Google it if you like, it's called uh, Science of Virtues, A New Science of Virtues. So they had 700 applications for research that would shed light empirically on whether on virtuous behavior. And we were one of the winners. The, each winner got $150,000. We were one of the winners. And our plan is to look at whether deliberation produces better citizens. So in two years, I'm supposed to have an answer. <laughs> uh, but we have a lot of suggestive um, uh, data. And um, uh, we, uh, we think that when people deliberate together, they become somewhat more public-spirited. Mill and Tocqueville speculated that. Uh, they become uh, 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 more open to competing points of view. 
they continue to participate and to stay informed. And part of the the proposal was we had to say this is a half normative, half empirical um, uh, proposal, and we will engage in the debate about what better citizens would be. When Posner attacked the deliberative poll, he said, we don't want citizens to deliberate. We don't want them even to participate. And in fact, it might be a good thing if they just stayed home. If they stayed home, they're probably uh, highly contented. And um, if they uh, show up, maybe they're just going to cause trouble because apps actually, you know, the passions and interests of the public may motivate factions adverse to the rights of others. So, but on... But on a certain views of better citizens, it's a good thing if citizens think and deliberate, if certainly if they think before they vote, and if they vote. Uh, I had a rational choice colleague at Texas who objected when I had one of those, uh, I don't make partisan statements, but I had one of those little buttons that said I voted after I voted. And he said, take that off. I said, why? He said, that's an indication of, of numerical illiteracy. <laughs> what do you want to tell people you're an idiot? I said all I did was I voted. Is <laughs> well, uh, it's, don't you know your vote doesn't count? So, uh, in any case, uh, there's a, there is a contested issue about what better citizens would be. But we all offer a certain account of citizenship, and then see whether deliberation fosters it. Uh, now, that is the European Parliament in Brussels. But that is not the... um, Those are not the members of the European Parliament. (laughs) That is a sample of ordinary citizens which we recruited off the Eurobarometer, or we recruited off... uh, TNS Safres, who do the Eurobarometer, uh, did a random sample of the entire European Union, and we brought them together... And indeed, there's a chapter on the European public sphere in the book. And if you buy the book, you get this free DVD, which these Emmy Award-winning British documentary makers made, set to tango music for some reason I couldn't figure out, but made about the European-wide deliberative poll and the challenge of deliberation in the face of 22 languages. Well... 22 official languages, actually it was 21 because all of the Irish wanted to speak English. Uh, But they had the right to speak Gaelic and we had to translate all the stuff into Gaelic uh, as well as the other languages. But imagine the small group discussions with Bulgarian, Italian, Estonian, um, uh, German, uh, etc. all in the same room. Uh, It was a real challenge. But it actually worked just like all the others. I'm not going to talk in detail about any one deliberative poll, except I'll point out a few things. One of the interesting aspects of the European-wide project is the kind of future of the European social welfare model, including pensions, was on the agenda. And by the way, it was an immense project because we had 22 partner organizations who had to agree to everything. And... Uh, uh, from all over Europe. And so getting their agreement, it was worse than the Australian uh, to get the agreement on the, on the um, briefing materials and the rest of it. But for me, the root of deliberation is weighing. So you really have to ask questions where if people are going to get more of one thing, they have to give up of some, something else. Um, not just 
you know, platitudes. Uh, so uh, they had the demographics that Europe is aging, and they knew that the pay-as-you-go retirement systems were going to go bust. But it turned out, I don't have this on the slide, there was decreasing support for privatizing the pension system. They wanted to keep the government, they liked the security of the government-run pay-as-you-go systems, but they were willing to work to a later age to make it possible. Uh, they, wanted to, they wanted to retire later. Now, for you and me, for all of us in this room, for those, it looks like a pretty young crowd, but for all of us in this room who have any thought about retirement, continuing to work is not a... Um, not a problem for us because we mostly like what we do. But for a lot of people, for most of the people out there who have hard and difficult jobs, giving up many years of their retirement is a real sacrifice. It's a really hard choice. Uh, and therefore, uh, uh, these people were advocating something. I, I, this is just an indication to me that they were really deliberating. Uh, now, this was... A, um, a bit of a surprise at the time, and uh, but the the another part of the deliberations was about Europe and the world, and there was a movement against enlarging the EU further, uh, and even more for um, for the Ukraine than for Turkey. Uh, but it was not driven. We've got a lot of uh, actually we have a we have a paper which which has some, um, some uh, modeling to try to explain this. It was, not, uh, it was mostly not because of the Muslim issue. It was for economic issues uh, but, uh, and because of the decision-making, but uh, economic issues. And look, there was a real split between the old member states and the new member states. I mean, it wasn't the, it wasn't the old... It wasn't the French and the Germans, by and large, who changed their views... It was the Poles and the uh, Czechs and the um, who who I think had heard the arguments for admission and had never thought about the arguments against further enlargement until they were immersed in Brussels in all the trade-offs and that's why uh, uh, there was the change. Um, uh, anyway, they became significantly more knowledgeable uh, and they. Uh, uh, became more open to different points of view. Now, on this polarization issue, remember Sunstein has argued that there's a, a law of group polarization. He, in fact, in an, in, a, in an essay he wrote in the Texas Law Review, which then we included, Laza and I included in the anthology um, uh, uh, debating deliberative democracy, Sunstein said that there was this inevitable law of group polarization where the deliberators, uh, and he did jury experiments with, um, with um, uh, uh, Kahneman, actually, uh, uh, to try to support this, uh, would move out, that, that is, uh, uh, a large portion of the time, people would move away from the midpoint towards the extreme. So what we did in these small group analyses, we have uh, uh, indices for the attitude items, and we have small groups. So think of these as group issue combinations. 
And um, so we end up with a fair number of group issue combinations. Um, and aggregating over uh, 15 deliberative polls in this case, uh, the uh, percentage of the group issue combinations that move away from the midpoint is 50%. So there's no law of group polarization where it always moves out. In fact, there's no law at all. It moves towards the midpoint as about as much as it moves away from the midpoint. So there is no law of group polarization with this design. And what this says to me is, like all issues about democracy, it's a question of institutional design. And you have to look at what institutional design will produce what effect. And we're, we actually have a proposal in to do a controlled experiment where we have different conditions, uh, some more like juries and some more like the deliberative poll. I don't know if we'll get the funding for that. But if you believe Sunstein's work on the juries and you believe us on the deliberative polls, you, it looks like the difference in the design is what's causing the, the uh, result. Uh, and this was uh, 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 basically the case in the, uh, in the EU. In fact, the percentage moving away from the midpoint was even lower. It was only 36%. Uh, now, here, this is about the inequality. Uh, over all these same 15, uh, the percentage moving towards the... Me- you know, the, the feminists... Um, uh, um, uh, the late Iris Young, uh, along with Lynn Sanders, argued that it would be the men dominating the, dis- the deliberations that would be the problem. Well, uh, if we, what we did is we took the initial position of whatever is alleged to be the most privileged group, the men, the more educated, the rich, um, the dominant racial group, and we saw whether on these, um, on these uh, issue indices... Uh, uh, there was a movement toward or away from the initial positions of the most privileged group. And there was not. There's a slight movement in the direction. uh, It's it's 53% of the time towards the higher income, only 39% towards the white when there's a white-non-white divide. In some countries, we have China in here, so the white-non-white would not be applicable. But... uh, 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 there's 60% overall towards the higher educated. But remember, there is this um, uh, uh, the more informed are determining the results. So it's not surprising that, that education would be connected to some degree. But I was talking to Jenny Mansbridge about this, who's, who was considering offering the critique, and when she saw this data, she said, this slight movement is not domination. The critique is that the more educated will dominate the discussion. So this slight tendency to move towards the more educated is not a response to the critique. You shouldn't worry about it. So anyway, that's the result of these. We're now doing some analyses with an even larger number uh, than this 15 um, for which we've got the data sets all in, in, um, uh, in shape. And, and the EU... Uh, EU was about the same thing. Here it was uh, uh, um, uh, uh, it was it was 60% in the EU one too. 
So, in any case, the EU won, but overall, that, that material responds to these two issues about polarization and domination. I want to mention a few other projects in rather novel contexts, so you can see. In Northern Ireland, we did a deliberative poll on education policy uh, with Protestants and Catholics, and uh, about whether the Protestants and Catholics would cooperate to some degree on schooling. And the UK is bringing in these uh, new education requirements that are very demanding and uh, where the population is falling. Um, and uh, just getting all the different school systems um, represented in the stakeholder process and on the podium answering the questions was considered to be a big victory, which we did. But the thing that I, that I and the BBC did a half hour about it and it fed into a report of a commission about what to do with the schooling in Northern Ireland. And there were various, not revolutionary, but reasonable incremental changes in the schooling system for those different school systems to share facilities and work together um, that came out of it. But the thing that absolutely amazed me, and this relates to the better citizens issue too, is that we had... This was only a one-day deliberation. And indeed, my wife and I, the day before, we went on a, we happened to step into a taxi who took us on a tour of the murals in Belfast. Uh, he asked us and we said yes, and we saw the Protestant murals and the Catholic murals. And I realized the depth of the conflict and the, the generational legacy of, of this injustice on one side and this on the other and how, and I... I almost um, cried as I realized that I had been a damn fool, I thought, to agree to a one-day deliberation on such an issue. But look what happened. The uh, percentage saying Protestants or Catholics are open to reason increased 16 points. Uh, or trustworthy uh, increased 10 or 12 points. Uh, and you could see it at the beginning at the beginning of the process, I mean, I didn't know who was a Protestant and who was a Catholic, but they all knew. And you could see that their eyes wouldn't even meet at the beginning in the small group discussions, random sample, randomly assigned. But by the end of the day, they were really talking to each other. And it had this effect. Uh, and there were various, uh, 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 very significant uh, policy changes, and they became uh, dramatically more informed, as we can see from the knowledge questions. There's another case I want to describe, which is perhaps even more surprising, and this is, this is not only described in the book, but we have this article in the British Journal uh, that's out this month called, and it's also now on the front of our website, called Deliberative Democracy in an Unlikely Place. So, uh, and one point of this article is that all those criteria I mentioned are satisfied perfectly in this first Chinese project. Perfectly. Uh, the, uh, uh, not just to some degree, but, but perfectly. The, um, uh, so that's my Chinese collaborator, Bao Gang He, who's now in Australia at Deakin University. Uh, and this is in uh, Zegwa Township, which is a township in Wenling City, which is 
very small Chinese city. It's a city of only a couple of million, um, uh, uh, about 300 kilometers south of uh, Shanghai. And the uh, local party, and, and so I was invited to China by Bao Gang, who's an expert on democratic processes, uh, mostly local elections in China. And Bao Gang invited me to a conference in, um, in Hangzhou uh, called Deliberative Democracy in China. And in that um, uh, conference, I was there, and uh, there were almost the, mostly local party officials who were actually trying to consult the public in some way. Uh, and in Wenling, uh, which is a hotbed of public consultation, there were, they were con- doing what they called uh, kentan. Kentan means sincere heart-to-heart discussion meeting. Sincere heart-to-heart discussion meetings where they would, it's sort of like what we would call a town meeting, where the public shows up and they talk about an issue. But the public officials were not satisfied with the Kentan because they said it was dominated by the more advantaged people, the rich and the, the local notables. There was no clear decision result from the Kentan. Um, and it was certainly unrepresentative of the public. So when I presented the deliberative poll, a lot of public officials were interested. And one, the party leader um, in Zegwa Township, which is a township of um, only about 120,000 people, uh, but very prosperous, growing tremendously. He said he would like to do a deliberative poll. I said, what on? He said, well, he had 30 infrastructure projects, highways, um, uh, fancy town square, uh, a comprehensive environmental plan, parks, different things like that. And he said that in other towns in China, the local party leader would simply decide what they would do, and everybody would assume he was getting paid off, and uh, he didn't want that. He wanted transparency. He wanted the people to decide. It turned out he had once been a Rawls student, or he'd been studying Rawls, Rawlsian political theory, and then decided to be practical. He's very, uh, Mr. Jang, very, um, uh, very thoughtful, uh, uh, high-minded uh, party official. So we said, okay, we'll do it. But I said, getting a little bold, but you have to implement the results and you have to do it exactly right. He said, fine, we'll do that. So, um, so I show up a couple of weeks before. They, well, I go out there with Bao Gang and we work on a questionnaire and the rest of it. And then I show up a couple of weeks before to check on how it's all going. And, he's, and I'm very surprised they've already selected the sample but I say, so how many did you select? And he said, oh, about 290. I said, 290? Oh, this is terrible. We'll never get... Well, they said, well, how many did you want? I said, well, I want you know, about 250 there on the day. He said, don't worry, don't worry, it'll be fine. So, I'm, and, I, and they're paying them, but they're paying them only a very modest fee, you know. So it turned out, and the 290 were the ones selected in the sample, not who had actually taken, actually taken the questionnaire. Turned out everybody selected in the sample virtually took the questionnaire. And everybody who took the questionnaire showed up. It's almost perfect. 
The only thing is, we found out on the day that there were some cases where uh, the wife in a household had taken the initial survey and the husband showed up. So we sent the husbands home because the husband said, oh, the husband knows more. Now, we don't want the ones who knows more. We want whoever was selecting the sample. So we got rid of the husbands, but we still had a uh, fantastic uh, turnout. So if you look at this article, the analysis of participants and non-participants is basically you know, the wayward husbands uh, uh, screwing it up. Uh, otherwise, it's a perfect sample of the population. I mean, I, I cannot imagine a different context where we would get a perfect sample to show up. Uh, so... That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is just before, so we had, so given the complexity of this, 30 projects, and each project had its own advocate in the bureaucracy. You know, one person thought this highway was a great thing. One th- and so we had all these experts who were advocates, uh, and we had briefing materials, and we trained the local teachers. I wanted to make it, they had to pay for everything because they had to own it. Uh, I've only got five minutes? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll go fast. Well, let let me say this. Before we started the deliberative poll, uh, just as it was starting, Mr. Jang said, oh, I know which are the best projects. I got very nervous at this point. And he said, it turned out out he was exactly wrong because he thought they would want these image projects, the projects showing the town is so prosperous. What they wanted was clean water. They wanted sewage treatment plants. They wanted a comprehensive environmental plan. So those are the projects that went up to the top, and his favorite projects, including this fancy town square, went to the very bottom. Well, he was as good as his word. He did exactly what he said. And he said, and um, it was written up in the New York Times and Time Magazine and other places, and he said, I gave up power and discovered I had more. He became very famous in China, so famous that he was sent on a year to study in America, and he came to see us at the Center for Deliberative Democracy. And um, uh, this became, the whole thing became famous in China. We've done it a bunch of times, and now, May 10th, we are having a conference at the Central Party School in China, in Beijing, which is the nerve center of all decision-making in China. The president of the Central Party School becomes... President Xi will become the next president of China in, in 2012. Hu Jintao was the president of the Central Party School. The Central Party School is having a conference May 10th to discuss applying deliberative polling as a form of democratization in China. Uh, so it's, it's, it has become um, widespread there. And if you read the article in the British Journal, you see by all the criteria I mentioned, uh, avoiding polarization, avoiding domination by the, uh, by the small groups, having the information-driven model um, um, explain the opinion change on the attitude indices, uh, uh, the people becoming more public-spirited because we rated the projects in terms of whether they affected the whole community or just one village. It was perfect. And, of course, it was all implemented. So it was the, it's probably the only perfect case of, of deliberative polling uh, uh, Bulgaria and the Roma we did. Rome, we solved a budget crisis where the, the, uh, they had too many hospital beds. Uh, the, they didn't want to touch the hospital beds because the public liked the fact that they had so many more hospital beds in the Regione Lazio in Rome than any place else. But um, the public wanted to redistribute the resources from the 
the medical care resources from the hospital beds to others, closed them down, and that actually happened. This is described in the book. So the Assessori in for the Regione Lazio, which is the state in which Rome is the capital, 11 million people, said, you gave me cover to do the right thing, and now I will do it. And he did. But the whole thing was open. I mean, it could have gone the other way. Um, but that cover to do the right thing is a phrase I will never forget because it's occurred over and over in other deliberate polls in Western contexts as well. I'd, maybe I'll just close with this. That's George Papandreou, who's now the Prime Minister of Greece. Uh, these are candidates. That's the moderator. But these are candidates. As I said, I thought I invented the deliberate poll, and I did, but it goes back to ancient Athens. This is in Athens, or the suburb of Athens called Morosi, where they had the Olympics. We, and we have a paper on our website about this project. We used the deliberative poll to officially choose candidates for one of the two main political parties, PASOK, which is now the ruling party in Greece. Uh, and these are the candidates who were uh, 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 on, on a short list. This is for mayor. And the least known candidate won and that is, this is a device, or the remains of part of a device, which you can see in the Museum of the Forum in Athens. It's called the Clarotarian. The Clarotarian is a kind of, this is, it's a kind of lottery device. It's a kind of a, it's, it's a device where you have to see the rest of it, but this is what remains of it. It's sort of like a bingo thing where you could pick the numbers. And through this device, they would make the random samples. And in ancient Athens, they used random sampling to select the microcosms. So the Financial Times wrote up our Athenian project as Athenian democracy returns after 2,400 years. And it's the viability of Athenian democracy in the modern context that is deliberative democracy made practical, which we are studying, applying, the book describes how we brought wind power to Texas. Now you can see with the Central Party School how this is spreading in China. We've been doing these projects in Japan. It even overcomes the divisions of Northern Ireland, Catholics and Protestants. Uh, I, was gonna, I had the Bulgarian and the Roma, but we didn't get to talk about it. Other cases of great division. We have an online process, so it overcomes the distance uh, we can do the online process for a tenth the price of the face-to-face. -face. It works very well. In any case, this is both a social science research program, a form of public consultation, and as it's developing in China and now in Greece um, and in Texas as part of the regulatory process, an actual form of decision-making as well as a form of political communication because we almost always have media involved in the project. So let me open this up to questions now. Yes? If it could work in those very difficult places, well, we had the chance. I, I would like to. Uh, do, they, do they have any interest in this in California? Give us an extreme example of polarization at the state level, budgeting, and Oh, it's terrible. I feel that I'm living with the legacy of the progressives. The progressives were well-meaning, and as always, the unintended consequences of democratic reforms are quite different from what anybody thought. So they thought that, uh, and given that I'm at Stanford, which is the legacy of Leland Stanford, <laughs> given the progressives, uh, but nevertheless, 
there is the problem that, um, uh, but the truth behind what the progressives were after is that the people are very smart and they are very competent if you give them an appropriate opportunity to get engaged and have their voice matter. But right now you've got the, 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 the initiative referendum process where you get, uh, 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 it makes political decision making almost impossible. Uh, so, yes, California is definitely on my agenda, but we've also got other problems we're hoping to deal with that are important around the world, including climate change. We're about to do, I can't mention the country, but we're about to start an initiative, an um, important initiative in an Arab country where uh, we're going to be doing deliberative uh, polling, deliberative democracy for actual policy making. And I don't, I, uh, I'll know in a few weeks what the topic is, but it'll be something like the strategy in China, where we began in China with sewage, not politics. We weren't a threat to anybody. We were solving concrete problems. We were just recently, because of the Central Party School, contacted by Guangzhou, which you may or may not know is a city of 10 million people. And Guangzhou has a problem of not sewage, but trash. <laughs> what to do with all their trash? So we're going we're gonna to do the trash in Guangzhou to follow up with the sewage in, in Zegua, but we're going to, you know, we're dealing with concrete, but these are, this is improving the governance process, but it's modeling a certain kind of democracy. If we can do this in various countries, maybe we can, I'm very interested in, in California, but I've not been able to network to the right people in California. Uh, and I thought the, the ill-fated proposal for a citizens convention was a dog's breakfast of a design. It was terrible. Uh, uh, so I, we could talk more about that. Uh, you, I think you'll be next. Yeah, would you sort of go back to basic? What, what's the problem you're trying to solve? What would the public think if it were thinking? And you want representative, you want to do this in a representative and informed way. Well, that's fine. But but nevertheless, if you believe in democracy, I mean, if you believe in democracy and you want you want a public input for the policy process. I was going to show you our work in Texas on the um, energy choices where they had to consult the public somehow by, by law, uh, the energy companies and uh, the electric utility companies. And if they did polls, the public didn't have the information. If they did focus groups, they were too small to be representative. If they had open meetings, they would just be captured by lobbyists and organized interests. So they did deliberate polling and actually everybody was happy with the results. Um, so it's that process in a democracy. If you're going to consult the public in a substantive way about policy, we use, we build on public opinion research to get a good sample, but then we also do experiments and study the process to design it so that we're, we're getting an informed and balanced input. We have the data to show that it avoids the distortions, the people are becoming more informed, they change their views, et cetera. And if you can think of other criticisms we should respond to, we'll design experiments and maybe tweak the process as we study it. But that's the problem. How to consult the public, how to consult a representative public under good conditions. Uh, and with public comment processes and all kinds of other ways, the public is being consulted all the time, but they're being manipulated as they're being consulted. Yes? Can this be replicated? Uh, by at low cost, or do communities who want to do this have to bring in high-priced consultants? Well, I'm not a high-priced consultant, but but we foster all kinds of projects. Indeed, I have an initiative with the American 
Democracy Project, which is part of the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, which is not sort of high-end universities as good as this one, but other other universities all around the country um, uh, where we're fostering the training of people to do deliberative polling from that association at the in their local colleges and universities. And we, we're happy to spread this around. Uh, and indeed, the one-day projects are not so expensive, and very often they can be subsidized by getting a lot of student uh, labor involved to enthusiastic students to... Uh, involved in doing it. But we have certain quality standards, which is why it's trademarked. It's trademarked so that uh, as a form of quality control, and any money from the trademark goes to the university to support research. But it's, uh, uh, it's not a, I'm not a high-priced consultant. Uh, I th- is there somebody in the back? Oh, left. Okay. Um, wait, let me get for another part of the room. Yeah. Uh, one, one interpretation of your China work yeah. is that what you're doing is shoring up Mm-hmm. Um, you, you consider, and this fits very nicely, actually, within the Chinese Communist Party's own conception of what democracy is, what they tell ordinary people democracy is, the legal consumption, and so forth. But in the end, of course, it's democratic principles. Um, do you, do you uh, deal with that explicitly in your, uh, in your book? I deal, with it, I deal with it in the book, and I deal with it in the article. Uh, and I've struggled with it. I've had very... I've had long conversations with my friend Larry Diamond, who, um, uh, who, and, uh, who I went to for advice about this very issue, and he's strongly encouraged me to go ahead. In fact, joined me in welcoming the Central Party School to a visit at Stanford to promote this, under the notion that in the long term, we're placing a bet that creating an expectation that the public's representative and informed views will be responded to on concrete policy issues is itself a force for democracy. And I will tell you that the particular people at the Central Party School who have studied it and who I am dealing with are in a big complicated system and there are terrible things that go on in China. I I am well aware of that. But the particular people I'm dealing with are sincere democratic reformers within the limits of what is possible. So Professor Lee, who's the head of, of government and law at the Central Party School, said to me late at night, he said, I'm 61 years old. I don't think I will see party competition in my lifetime, but this we can do. And with the implication that maybe it will lead to it. So I, I think that that's the case. That it, This is not a cynical, this is not, to the extent that I'm being helped, it's not a cynical calculation. It's a calculation that it's a step along the road to further democratization. And by the way, I've had very intense debates privately in China where they've asked me, um, you know, what are the merits of Taiwanese fake assassination uh, style uh, party competition democracy? You know, where the uh, uh, where either side or weapons of mass destruction party competition democracy, uh, you know, where misinformation is spread. Uh, and I even had a... Uh, uh, Professor Lee was much more supportive of, of, of um, uh, party competition as the eventual goal. This is inside the Central Party School. Then um, my friend, Mr. Jang, I was talking to my friend, Mr. Jang, about this, and he said to me, we don't see," he said. "We don't need your your 
party competition democracy here. Uh, I said, yes, you do. Over the long term, you do. He said, no, no. He said, has your vote ever counted? I said, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? He said, and he's very, he's very um, uh, 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 urbane guy. He says, uh, do you live in a swing state? <laughs> I said, well, uh, no, I live in California. That's not a swing state. He said, uh, where'd you live before? I lived in Texas. Is that a swing state? I said, nope. He said, um, is your congressional district gerrymandered? <laughs> I said, I think it probably is. Uh, uh, he said, see, your vote never counts. But in China, we implement your theory perfectly. <laughs> so, so, so he said, and what is the ultimate democratic value? He said, you say in your book it's political equality and deliberation. We implement that perfectly. Do you implement that in California? I'm thinking about the referendum. I said, well, <laughs> so, so we have a long way to go with our, um, and, and then he said, how do you defend the Electoral College? You know, and I can't defend it. So, so we have a long way to go. Our system's not perfect. You know, this presumption that we have such a great form of democracy and they're primitive. They're trying to figure out a way to implement democratic values. Uh, and it's a big, complicated, it's a fantastically big, fantastically complicated Thing. And there are bad guys and good guys. And, uh, and indeed, Mr. Jang was hassled by the security forces five or six times for the very fact that he was talking to me. Uh, uh, now the Central Party School says they're going to fix that. But, you know, I show up. I'm an American. I'm obviously not Chinese. I don't speak Chinese. Uh, so therefore, you know, and I am I, uh, I told Professor Lee that uh, um, I told... Mr. Jang to say, because uh, he said, you know, you're, you're trying to promote Western-style democracy. I said, no, say you're trying to promote Athenian democracy. So Mr. Jang tried that. He told the security police he was trying to promote Athenian democracy. And they said, what's that? Uh, so then Professor Lee said, ah, the security people, they're idiots. <laughs> we'll fix that. <laughs> so, so in other words, you have that kind of situation. We're trying to foster, you know, step by step, I think it will be constructive over the long term. But China, yes, has authoritarian elements. We have authoritarian elements. If you look at um, um, uh, some of the people we've imprisoned um, um, in Guantanamo and some other things, we've done some terrible things too. Uh, but obviously, I am a proponent of all the democratic values on that list um, over the long term. Uh, the question is how you get from here to there. Yes? Well, there are always going to be some losers, but I do think that the very process of dialogue and the very any situation where people think they had their voice heard, you have a better chance of getting the losers inside the tent than outside. So compared to, you know, um, 
party, compared to partisan competition, um, I think we have a better chance. Um, uh, but, you know, there's still going to be uh, losers in any process. Uh, but we've been able to... Uh, to uh, uh, there are quite a few cases where we've been able to get our, our projects uh, implemented. So it's not just talk. And it's usually not criticized too much. Um, it's a good point, though. Yes? Okay, but if it realizes all of these kind of satisfactory results for those who are engaged in the deliberation, yeah. how does that then get legitimated outside of that small group? How do ordinary citizens who haven't participated in the process gain benefits from well, that's a tough question. Uh, we, um, unlike the ancient Athenians, we have the media. So we just did this project a few weeks ago um, with McNeil Air Productions about the economic crisis in Michigan. It's called Hard Times, Hard Choices. It was broadcast. Jim Lair hosted the broadcast one hour. You can find the uh, video on our website, for example. Uh, it was certainly broadcast heavily all over the state. The results of the deliberative poll were and the video were given to every legislator in the state. Uh, their, uh, the governor was there. Of course, you know, the alienation given the economic crisis from all elected officials is pretty strong. Uh, but um, the, uh, 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 the uh, reach of it can be extended with further discussions. I think we've only scratched the surface for online tools for spreading the dialogue because we have the same materials we can, um, if we had more money, we would chop up the dialogue in terms of excerpts that could be used to stimulate further discussions online. Um, but uh, what we try to do is give a picture not just of what the results are, but why people came to the conclusions they did. So we have enough value questions. We have what my... Um, uh, colleague Bob Luskin originally called empirical premises, that is, uh, contested causal connections that people allege that they may accept or may not accept, um, um, which uh, you can model the opinion changes uh, based upon who believes what and sort of give a picture as to why. Uh, the, um, uh, some of the television programs and videos I think a good one is the uh, one in the back of the book uh, about the European-wide one, but also the, uh, the Michigan one is very good, which you can just click on and see online. You can see at least a good television producer's account from the small group discussions of how people are coming to the conclusions they are. And if you communicate not only how the opinion changed, but why it changed and how people became more informed, you create a route to what I call in the book responsible advocacy. We've got so much advocacy that is not responsible, that's either misinformation or, more importantly, strategically incomplete information. The information that's only one side, that if people actually heard the other side, they wouldn't agree with, but the other side never gets an effective hearing. And so if you can get... Um, uh, uh, but in our case, we're offering... We show the opinion changes that withstand the best arguments on either side. And if you can show how people would change after they've really thought about the best arguments on either side and legitimate that as a representative and more informed sample, you have a basis for, 
for uh, making decisions, and that's why the assessori was able to say, you gave me cover to do the right thing. Partly because the Italian press, unusually for them, wrote it up big, the Corriere della Sera, La Repubblica, most of the major newspapers treated it as a big deal. And uh, as a result, they were able to invoke that uh, and, uh, and, make, uh, and make decisions. So uh, in the best of all possible worlds, you'd have not only political equality and deliberation, not only political equality via random sample, randomly assigned, but political equality in terms of the whole population, but that's very difficult. In fact, um, with my trilemma, it's almost impossible. Bruce Ackerman and I had a scheme for how you could do that, uh, but it's very expensive. So expensive, it makes the deliberative poll look very cheap. You know, it's billions of dollars rather than hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we can represent what the public would think, just as an ordinary poll represents what the public is thinking. Uh, but what, uh, you know, actually getting everybody, if you had everybody engaged, then you'd have the merit that, you know, everybody participated, everybody thought they were part of the process. Uh, but, you know, that's the, that's the illusory dream of the progressives. What happened is the progressives got sometimes the mass participation, but often not, because a lot of primaries and referenda and special elections are low turnout. But sometimes the participation of everybody but not the informed and representative participation of everybody. Yes? So you spoke about the unintended consequences of Brexit and back to that. Um, unintended consequences are usually unanticipated consequences, and I can't ask you uh, what uh, unanticipated consequences you anticipate. <laughs> but you must have worries about how this would be perverted when money interests and Well, the more this becomes consequential, the more somebody is going to try to... So, when we did the one in Athens, which was actually there was something real at stake, that is the actual nomination of one of, one of the two biggest parties, um, uh, we uh, decided that we couldn't... We had to limit the number of candidates. We limited the number of candidates to six. So, the party had a short list of six. Uh, the result is one possible candidate who wanted to be on the, in the shortlist was not accepted on the shortlist. And he was certainly, I think, a sore loser because he hired a polling firm, actually it was a call center, to try to uh, sabotage the event. So <laughs> they were trying, a couple of days before the event, they were trying to call the sample to tell them the event had been canceled. But they couldn't call the sample because the one thing I told my Greek colleagues is keep the list absolutely secret. So they had no idea who was in the sample. So they were calling the general population. They were making hundreds, tens of thousands of calls to try to find these. So there were, and telling, so, so then we got word from a few people who were in the sample, just a handful who'd gotten this, these calls, who were told that the event had been canceled. That's how we found out about it. So obviously that didn't... didn't. So then when we showed up at the venue there, uh, early, there was a sign that said the event had been moved. Which, <laughs> so we had to take that down. You know. So obviously what, you know, there, were, there were people who were trying to interfere with it. Now, 
So if this became more consequential, you'd have to worry about such things, uh, uh, perhaps. Um, uh, the reason I trademarked it is I didn't want somebody to say they had done a deliberative poll and, you know, let's say a tobacco company to try to, you know, you know somebody with a nefarious purpose. So, um, uh, and so we've been able to successfully defend that because I have a European trademark and an American trademark and I'm able to defend it in most places. Um, uh, but um, what am I worried about? Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, I'm trying to figure out a way to institutionalize it. The, um, the Danes have a lousy model of deliberation in something called the Consensus Conference. Uh, I don't know if you know about this, but you know they originally were advertising in the newspaper, and they pick the, you know, and then it tries to reach consensus. So, so a bad sample, and uh, and a bad process. But they had a fantastically innovative institutionalization of it, in that the Danish Technology and Science Board or, uh, has a mandate from the Parliament, where either by public petition or by members of parliament requesting, they do a certain number of consensus conferences every year. And, uh, and um, so there's an institution in the parliament that sponsors these events and that ensures that the materials are balanced and that there's no predetermined agenda and the rest of it. So some of my friends in Brazil, by the way, I didn't mention that we've done deliberative polling now in Porto Alegre, which is the home of the, didn't get to that slide, of the so-called participatory budgeting which is famous around the world, we're now doing scientific samples and deliberative polling in Porto Alegre. Um, the, um, but that, some of my friends in Brazil are hoping to institutionalize this in Brazil that same way. But I don't know if we, if we will, but somewhere we will. But figuring out how to institutionalize it, make it part of decisions so that we've gone, initially we were just doing media projects. The first deliberative poll was paid for by Channel 4 Television in Britain. Um, and, and then I took it to PBS, and then, but then we, we ended up being uh, part of the regulatory process for utilities in Texas, and now we're going to do, uh, I think, a utility thing in Arizona, and we've done in Nova Scotia, and Nebraska, and various other places, and Vermont, for the state of Vermont, we're getting involved with government decisions, um, and um, uh, so we're moving to, and with Pasak political party, and we've just had meetings about further Greek projects as soon as Greece gets through their financial crisis. Uh, so we're, um, uh, we're making this part of actual uh, decisions. But the key is we're not just doing this um, as a stunt. This is a serious examination of a, a piloting a form of democracy which was lost in the dust of history which has certain characteristics. When I'm not saying it should replace other forms, but as a useful supplement. Just as when George Gallup advocated the public opinion poll, he originally called it the sampling referendum, and he thought it was going to be a serious method of decision. Uh, and so what we are doing is, uh, and, it, and informally has had tremendous effect. Uh, so we're trying to say, if you have so many tens of thousands of conventional polls, 
Why not have deliberative polls that show what the public is thinking as opposed to what the people are thinking when they're not thinking and make that an input into politics and policy. And, but also study it very carefully because as we've seen in this dialogue that I've been having with Cass Sunstein and uh, Lynn Sanders and others, it's obvious that the very precise institutional design can have a lot of effect. And so you have to study it. We have to do controlled experiments. You'll see in the BJPS, this volume, both the, both the, the Chinese article, but also this experiment we did with Don Green. We have several other experiments that are under submission or with revise and resubmits uh, that uh, we hope will get through the process soon and out. But meanwhile, the papers are all on the website, so you can check it out on the CDD website and get an overview from the book. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.